Hello, and thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Ashley Burrell. I'm the Secretary of the Board for Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. We will be producing monthly podcasts featuring women of color in the peace and security field. So please visit WCAPS.org regularly for more details. Hello, um, this is uh, Bonnie Jenkins, the uh, president and founder of WCAPS. I want to welcome all of you to another edition of our WCAPS podcast. And today we have with us Rachel Gillum. And she has a really amazing background and uh, very impressive uh, things that she has done. Um, and she uh, is currently at Stanford um, as a visiting scholar. And I will let uh, Rachel introduce herself uh, in a minute, but I did want to uh, once again remind our listeners to um, continue to listen to the podcast that we have on our WCAPS website, where we will continue to interview really impressive women of color who are in the field of peace and security and are doing amazing work. So with that, I think I'd like to start. And I'd like to uh, turn it over to you, Rachel. Could you say a little bit about yourself, who you are, and um, where you're from? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, As you said, I'm currently uh, at Stanford at the Immigration Policy Lab as a visiting scholar there. Um, But I'm originally from Seattle, Washington, and did my undergrad at University of Washington and ended up in California after graduate school and ended up sticking around because um, the Bay Area is so beautiful. So really love it down here. And what is your, uh, say a little bit about your educational background. Yeah, so I came down to Stanford to pursue my PhD in political science. I studied comparative politics, international relations, but my dissertation really ended up focusing on um, Muslims in the United States and their experiences basically after 9-11 in particular, the changes in security policies, um, a concern about, you know, um, stopping homegrown terrorism, I was really interested, you know, in asking the question, you know, we have all these new security policies and institutions and changes, but no one's really asked the question of what are the effects of these policies on, you know, real Americans, you know, living here and Muslims. So I basically ran a nationwide survey of Muslims. I spoke to hundreds of Muslims across the country about their experiences, um, looked at variety of, a variety of different data to assess, you know, what Muslims' role have been um, in helping thwart attacks. And in fact, they've been incredibly helpful. And I um, really just mapped this out actually in my book that actually just came out, Muslims in a Post-9-11 America. And um, I, th- I think it tells a different story than what a lot of, um, you know, commentary on Muslims tends to suggest. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, congratulations on your book. That's really, it's always great to, uh, to have a book under your belt. I'm still uh, waiting to do that myself. Yeah. <laughs> and um, actually, could you say a little bit more about that? I mean, you, you, you said that after 9-11, you were interested in this issue. Is there anything that um, you think directed you toward that particular issue? Um, or was it just really, you just, you just thought this is a, something I really just want to do out of, out of the blue, is there a background to that? There's definitely a background to it. I was working for the government in counterterrorism actually before I started at Stanford. 
And, um, you know, I think a lot of us were focused on, you know, the terrorist threat, you know, shortly after 9-11, that definitely was formative in my desire to go into sort of the national security field. But I think being a minority, being a black woman, I saw a lot of the, um, some even government materials, you know, suggesting this is how you spot a terrorist, you know, this is, you know, profiling people so blatantly, right, just based on racial and ethnic backgrounds, based on religious backgrounds, it really, you know, struck a chord that, you know, wow, this type of profiling, I've seen it in my community, and certainly this is having an effect for folks, you know, of, of you know, Middle East and African and other backgrounds, you know, who are Muslim, and in fact, it does and, um, tremendously. Um, and we see a lot of policies that many of such that have now been, you know, canceled or no longer in play. But even to this day, we see policies that really rely on a lot of profiling or not scientific evidence targeting groups that are supposedly more inclined to be involved in violence, but the, the real data do not support that at all. And so that's some of the issues I try to address in the book. And that's really what led me to the question in the first place. Great, and I definitely want to go back to this issue of um, some of the things that you have found in your book, particularly want to talk about some of the changes that you might have seen since uh, since 9-11 on this issue of profiling and, and how Muslims are treated um, as a result of uh, these issues like 9-11. But you said that you did some work at the RAND Corporation. Um, talk a little bit more about, about that. Yeah, absolutely. So while I was in grad, graduate school, um, and, and many listeners probably know when you're pursuing your PhD, you're primarily preparing to be a professor of, you know, whatever the field you're studying, political science in my case. I wasn't always sure I wanted to go into academia, so I took my summers and I would work at different institutions in D.C., and the RAND Corporation was one. It was great because I was... Um, able to, you know, use my security clearance and, and work in that regard. And so what I was studying at RAND actually was the recruitment strategies of different terrorist organizations, particularly them recruiting Americans to go overseas and fight. So we saw a lot of this um, with the Syrian conflict, a lot of outreach by ISIS to folks in the United States and throughout Europe. Um, but we also saw it much earlier when I was studying, I was really focused on the Somali conflict. Um, we saw a big group of Somali-Americans, young men who had never been to Somalia or had only been as infants, didn't speak the language. Somehow they were being drawn away to go fight overseas. And many of them, you know, once they get there, they realize this is not <laughs> what I want to be doing. But unfortunately, upon trying to escape, a lot of them were actually killed or um, you know, unable to, to return to the United States. So that was a really interesting project, but really looking at the transformation of Al-Shabaab's strategies from very simple videos to then when they actually um, more formally linked with Al-Qaeda, their media strategies got much more sophisticated and much more effective and was able to draw people from all around the world. Great, and I'm I'm looking at at um, your resume here, and just just to just to go back to some of the, some of the things you've done, um, I know that you um, also work for the Center of International Security and Cooperation, and also at Stanford there, and um, at the CIA as a graduate fellow uh, intel analyst, and so you know I see that you have been in a lot of the hard security issues, um, as well as looking at some immigration issues. Um, how many, if you can think back, were, were there many people of color uh, along the line 
uh, in your path, during your path as you were going through working in some of these places? You know, um, that's a good question. I mean, if I have to sit and think hard, not, you know, not a lot come to mind, I'll say, as far as the people I was working alongside. But I will say that I had some amazing mentors along the way. Um, both people of color, you know, as I was an undergraduate, starting to work in graduate school as I was taking some of these, you know, summer positions. Um, I had some great mentors that really encouraged me. So even though the people I wasn't sitting next to, I had a community, I had advocates and mentors that were really supporting me during that time. Um, so that was really important. And I'll add that I also had some great mentors and advocates that were not people of color that really supported me and helped advance my career. And I think it's key for anyone sort of building their career. You know, it's amazing to have mentors and advocates of color in a community of color, but it's also important to find advocates wherever you can. I think that's just key in, in advancing and growing and learning and be able to, you know, take from those different leaders in your life as well. Um, I happen to be very lucky in that my current, so I'm a scholar at Stanford, but I also have a full-time job in the private sector um, working with Condoleezza Rice and, um, and her consulting firm. We advise private companies who are dealing with issues on the international stage. But I'm very lucky to happen to have another black woman as a great example of someone in the security international security realm to look up to. So that I happen to be very lucky, but I realize that's also very rare. Right. Um, and so I would just tell people not to be discouraged if they don't, you know, see as many people as they would like that mm -hmm. look like them. Yes, I can definitely relate to that. And um, one question that I often get from young women um, is how do you find mentors? And how do you approach mentors? And you've just mentioned that you've had some great mentors and not all, obviously not all of them were people of color. Um, how did you do that? How did you maneuver the mentor, the mentorship um, challenge? Yeah, it's, it's not always easy because people aren't, you know, always, you know, reaching out to you. You know, people that, you know, tend to identify with you will often reach out to you and often that is people of color. But in the case of, you know, when you're in a new institution, a new place, you know, I think first step is putting yourself out there, meeting people, getting to know people, letting them know, you know, what you have to offer. And then I think it's, you know, there's a aspect of you, you get a sense for who is more receptive, more interested in you. And I think it's a matter of sort of cultivating those relationships, um, you know, showing genuine interest in what they're doing, seeking to learn. I think it's important not to just, you know, be going around seeing what you can get from other people, but having, you know, developing genuine relationships. Because what I've learned is that's really, you know, what, what brings you, um, you know, either to the next level or gets you your next job is people that genuinely know you, genuinely, you know, you know that you genuinely care about them and sort of just developing sincere relationships. I know sometimes in D.C. and even in Silicon Valley, things can feel very transactional. So... Um, for those people you do naturally connect with, I would say just to foster those relationships. Um, it requires putting yourself out there, but uh, I think over time it pays off. And um, in addition um, to to the you know the outreach to mentors, uh, and, and I'm looking at your resume, and you're, and you're a perfect person to because I, I get so many questions from young women, um, and I'm, I'm channeling them through you because I think it's also good to hear from 
women like you have been, been so successful going through um, some of these areas that I think other women see as so challenging. What, what would you say has been um, one of the challenges that you faced um, in working in some of the environments like Department of Defense or CIA or in RAND? Um, what would you say has been one of your challenges and how you feel you overcome that challenge? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, interestingly enough, um, and, and again, this is not to, to badmouth these institutions. I had amazing experiences with a lot of people, but what actually surprised me is my biggest challenge I felt was not necessarily being a person of color, but being a woman, actually, in these environments in particular. Um, I, and, and I'm sure being a person of color didn't, didn't help, but you know, sort of starting out in many cases, a lot of assumptions about you not really knowing what you're doing and sort of not really belonging, frankly. I think some people assume I was there you know, for some diversity program. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, I turn in a piece of work and people say, oh my gosh, you can actually write, you know, and they're genuinely <laughs> shocked. And I'm thinking, okay, I don't know if I should be offended or, um, or what. And then so that's one issue. But I, and, and I think there's also an element of appearing, you know, or being younger or whatever too, that, that plays a role. But also on top of that, you know, sexual harassment is, and I know there's a lot of talk about this with me too, but you know, sometimes when you're the only woman in the room, instead of someone commenting on your presentation, I've gotten, you know, comments on your legs or how you're dressed or, and then of course, much more aggressive and forward situations. And it was a big learning process to learn how to navigate that, how to recognize those situations, you know, before they happen, how to shut them down, you know, know when it's the time to go get some help. Um, that those were actually probably the most standout challenges I had in those environments. Mm -hmm. And um, and you've obviously figured out how to maneuver that and how to know when to say something, when not to say something. Um, what would you give uh, advice to young women who are, you know, if they, if they face a similar situation, is there is there any particular type of advice you could give them? Uh, it's such a hard question because it's so sensitive and it's so situationally based. Right. Um, and so I don't, by all means, I think there's many approaches and many appropriate responses. The strategy I chose to take, I had actually a sort of a, a, a kind of colleague mentor. He wasn't directly working with me, but he was another um, actually black person. I felt I could confide in on some things. And I mentioned, you know, this, this, several incidents with the same person who, you know, was sort of harassing me. And I sort of mentioned, like, what do you think I should do? And, and he said, look, you know, you can report him. You have every right to you have this evidence. Um, he said, you know, and they're going to do something about it. But at the end of the day, you're going to be marked as a troublemaker and you're not going to be able to proceed. And, you know, as, as horrible as that is, and that's not fair that the burden goes on the woman and all that stuff, I totally understand that. For whatever reason at that time I, I took that and I said you know he's right and I took that realist approach and for the most part I sort of said you know to the degree I can I'm gonna sort of sort of try to stop this you know be the first line of defense for myself um, so to say very directly to men I don't appreciate that you know please you know don't comment on my body or whatever what I have you the issue be um, 
again, I, I want to reiterate, I know this is sensitive because often there's a power dynamic. It's your boss. It's your senior. It's, it's rarely, you know, a, a colleague or someone under you, which would make it simpler. But, um, you know, so that was often delicate things, delicate ways to signal, I'm not interested, um, you know, so you're not embarrassing them, so you're not retaliated against. But anyway, I, I took the, the path to make sure I was being very clear in my, um, you know, in my direct interactions. And then if I needed to, to escalate it, you know, then I would. Again, very sensitive topic, very context specific. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, I felt it was important for me to also stand up for myself first order and you know 99% of the time that shut it down in my case again that's not always the case and often this needs to be raised to higher levels but for me that, that seemed to work and you also mentioned you're having a colleague I think that raises the importance of having a support system where where it's possible to have one um, have you, I mean, are there cases that you can recall where you, you know, developed a support system, uh, like the one you spoke about to help you deal with some of these challenges, um, uh, that you can, or, or how would you advise to go about developing that kind of a support system? Yeah. So I think again, it's, it goes back to just developing genuine relationships, taking genuine interest in people at your job and that can be as you know as much you know include mentors and people ahead of you that you hope to be like one day but it's even the people working at the you know the welcome desk if you will you know all the assistants and associates often those people are you know saying hello how was your weekend and, and meaning it and listening to what they're saying um often these are the people who have given me the heads up on opportunities, what's going on in the office, what to watch out for, um, you know, just to understand the political dynamic of an office. Um, and so, I mean, maybe that's just something people don't, don't do enough, but I found that actually being incredibly helpful to getting insight and help navigating some of these sort of tricky issues that can happen in offices that don't necessarily directly relate to your work the content of your work that can be very disruptive to your work if you don't navigate them correctly and what would you say is a secret to your success oh gosh i mean i i i don't that's it's hard to say i think um again i have to give a lot of credit to all the mentors again people encouraging me in my life my family um and i and i think with that in mind my, my secret for me is keeping my mental health in order by making sure I'm keeping my perspective balanced, right? Um, not letting work be all consuming because if you have a bad day, bad week, bad month at work, I don't want that to, you know, leak into my private life with my family and friends. Um, and I, and I use the positive, you know, vibes I get from my family and friends to sort of keep me going right in the workplace when work can get hard sometimes. Um, I think also, I, I'm sure uh, many other people do too. I, you know, I struggle with imposter syndrome, right? You're in environments, no one looks like you. People are not necessarily assuming you're coming with, you know, the level of expertise or whatever, um, you know, but I, I think part of the success, I've tried to, try to use that imposter syndrome, that fear of, you know, being found out to motivate 
me to study even harder, make sure I really do know what I'm talking about mm -hmm. before I enter the room, before I enter the meeting. So try to channel that, you know, insecurity into a strength as much as I can. That sounds wonderful. Um, and now I just want to switch a little bit to a topic really, which is about the organization. And um, what are your thoughts on, I mean, what are the, on the importance of having um, diverse views and the views of women of color and some of these foreign policy decision making um, establishments uh, through the, both the process of sitting at the table and also the final decisions. As you know, one of the main goals of, w, of WCAPS is to highlight the fact that we need to bring more women of color, people of color, um, into foreign policy decisions and um, discussions, particularly since so many of those foreign policy affect people of color around the world and particularly women of color when you're talking about peace and security issues. So um, what are your thoughts on that in terms of why it's important to have uh, diverse voices at the table? Absolutely. Uh, it's so important. It's so important, especially in national security, because as you said, the implications of these policies affect so many people in the United States and around the world. Uh, we know not only from now, surely, but we know now from private sector studies, you know, companies that are concerned about making money, it's so important to have diverse groups because when you have people coming from different perspectives, different viewpoints, and we know that race and gender means that you've had very different experiences um, in the United States. Um, they bring different perspectives. They bring different ways to look at a problem and an issue and different um, experiences problem solving. And we know statistically that that results in better outcomes. That results in, in, in the case of these studies that I'm referencing, better, basically more profit for companies, more successful policies. And I have no doubt that that's the same in the national security realm. In my personal experiences, I've seen groups come together. And when you have a group of people that all come from the same, you know, socioeconomic, racial background, same, you know, Ivy League school, they all have been trained to solve problems in the same way, and that's fine, but it's not fine when no one's there to challenge your assumptions, to bring in a different perspective, because, because we see people, you know, say, oh yeah, we all agree, let's move forward on this, and then there's all these negative implications and ramifications that they did not see coming, but if they had some different people in the room, they could have prevented um, a lot of these, so I think it's incredibly important. Right, I totally agree with you on that, um, and particularly in terms of understanding the implications of decisions that are made that will not be quite understood unless you have voices at the table that can that can understand the cultural aspects of the implications of actions, uh, and just things they're not even thinking about if you don't have diverse voices around. around the exactly, exactly. Issues that wouldn't have come up otherwise. Um, and, that, and we've seen this be so important as we, again, send our troops to different parts of the world, or in the case of my research, implement policies that are affecting, that, uh, you know, maybe unintentionally have, you know, been targeted minorities. Again, I'm not saying that the people implementing these policies were intending to profile Muslims or to, you know, make policies that unfairly, you know, criminalize Muslims, but, you know, without perhaps having a diverse group sort of really scrutinizing these policies, you know, again, some of these unintended effects can change real lives. And that's, it's important to know that ahead of time. 
And this is a great segue to the work you're doing now. Um, and let's go back to some of the things you were saying earlier, um, based on the, the work you've done um, in your past, as well as the you know, work you've done in, in, in writing your book. Um, let's talk about, um, you've been working on, you've been first uh, seized of this issue, um, you know, particularly after 9-11. And in the, in the course of writing your book, have you, what have you, what would you say was some of the, lessons learned in terms of what happened in 9-11 in terms of how we are treating Muslims and today? I mean, are there many changes? Did it get better and then worse again? Or what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, 9-11, um, you know, when we have to remember what a chaotic, scary time that was. And so I, I definitely want to acknowledge that there were not the security institutions in place to deal with an attack on the homeland. So you know, impromptu institutions fill the void, and I and I acknowledge that and I understand that. But as far as some of the policies that were implemented, um, you know, we had a program such as the Nasir's program, which was basically a screening program where anyone coming from the middle, anywhere in the Middle East or Muslim country, um, basically it was followed and tracked while the, in the United States had to check in. Um, you know, and that, that's now gone away mostly because now everyone is followed and tracked while they're in the United States, no matter where they're coming from, because I think we realize, again, the threat's not just coming from one place. Um, but, you know, President Bush did go to lengths to not associate Islam with violence, but inevitably, you know, this fear spread and many of the policies that were put in place in that administration were really targeting Muslim groups. Um, and we know statistically that uh, Muslims aren't, you know, the ones, cr uh, you know, creating the most uh, terrorist uh, events in the United States. Um, the Obama administration tried to change the discourse away from what was referred to as the war on terror. And he chose a different word away from terrorism, um, countering violent extremism to really um, sort of try to bring a more holistic approach, meaning Let's look at the broader issues that might lead young people into violence. Um, start in the early stages of the radicalization. Um, a lot of scholars, though, still criticize many of these approaches and policies because, again, they were based on, um, they still targeted Muslims in that, you know, what are the, what, how can we tell if someone's radicalizing? Well, we can tell if they're very religious, if they're politically outspoken, if they wear a religious scarf, you know, where, where does that direct you to, right? That still directs you to Muslims um, in that regard. So, you know, some of the communities said, you know, yeah, President Obama did also go to lengths to try to disassociate um, Islam with violence and try to, you know, spread, you know, hey, we need to look at right-wing terrorism as well and deal with this as well. But many would say in practice, um, you know, Muslims have still been targeted. We see under the Trump administration, we, we see a big change in rhetoric. And I think the, the scariest thing, not only that he's following through on many of the policies <clears throat> and changes that he said he would do, such as the Muslim ban and some other policies, um, but he's inspired other people to speak out and, and act violently against Muslims. So we've seen spikes and um, hate crimes against Muslims, also against other minority groups, African-Americans and Jews as well. Um, you know, leading up to his ele election and since his election, we've seen a spike of hate crimes. And um, we've seen um, 
some fear in some cases of Muslims cooperating with police. Muslims have traditionally been extremely cooperative with police, helping um, disrupt plots, um, as I show in my book. Um, but it's, it's concerning when the current administration is so outwardly hostile towards Muslims and other minorities that we worry um, that cooperation will decline. We saw basically a lot of Islamic um, groups and political organizations that were seeking to counter violent extremism in their communities. You know, they had been awarded uh, grants to do this work under the Obama administration, but many actually ended up turning down this money once President Trump was in office and he was sort of espousing his views of Muslims because they felt that, you know, being associated with the government would hurt their work, it would be counterproductive, and it would just open the door to basically trouble, you know, being associated with the, with the Trump administration. That's really unfortunate. Um, Again, in my book, I find that actually Muslims, it, it, we see a lot in a lot of data sources, Muslims are actually the single largest source of disrupted um, plots in the United States um, by giving tips to police. So it is really problematic when we don't have that cooperation. And I'm wondering in your, in your research if you noticed any, um, any women um, uh, who are Muslims, did you find any, any indication at all about women being uh, more impacted by these issues at all? Just curious. In the previous administration, under the Obama administration, I knew a lot of Muslims working on issues of immigration, countering violent extremism, um, a, a reasonably robust community. So I, I definitely saw and met a lot of folks in that realm. In the current administration, I don't know of as many. Um, a lot of the you know, programs um, that were doing some of this outreach work to the Muslim community, I'm not sure if they still exist or they're not, certainly not as robust as they were under the Obama administration. So that's, that's really concerning. Um, I think what we've seen is a lot of people really hesitant to work with the Trump administration, again, because of some of the outward hostility and policies that they've choos chosen to pursue. Um, there's been rumors um, that basically the administration is you know, no longer looking into right-wing extremism, but really doubling down on looking into Islamic extremism and, and um, what they call um, radical Islamic extremism or something like that. Um, so it, it's not been a friendly environment, and I don't think you see a lot of uh, Muslims or other minorities running to work for this administration, right, right. Um, which, is, which is concerning because, you know, it, it would be nice, you know, to have more people on the inside doing what they can. And I'm sure there are plenty of career folks, you know, still working hard on these issues, and we thank them. Um, I know it must not be an easy time to, to be there right now. Right. Uh, just since your question about um, establishing true diversity. Yeah, so I um, helped found the True Diversity Initiative within the Truman National Security Project. The Truman National Security Project is an organization based in D.C. but really operates all over the country that is seeking to bring together veterans and different security professionals um, to really inform policy. So I, um, with a group of, of friends, um, namely um, my partner, Tony Johnson, we founded the True Diversity Initiative because we felt there was a need to really support the few of us who were there, people of color, um, who were in these different professions. All of us sort of feel like, hey, we're the only one, but to really come together and help, um, you know, 
support each other because we need our voices to be to be heard and to be amplified in many cases. Um, and so sort of come together to build a support network to do that. And not only to support ourselves, but to look and start to fill in this pipeline because what a lot of people, what I hear a lot is, you know, from other professionals who would love to hire people of color, they say, well, I don't know where they are. I, I, do they exist? Do we have enough people? And so um, over the, the three years that I was directing that, co-directing that, um, we started some programs that, you know, started to partner with local universities um, so that students would have mentors that look like them so that they could hear from people in the space who look like them and that we would also begin to connect with this network of students who are thinking about pursuing careers in national security and giving them the tools and encouragement to do so. Great. And I have one final question. Uh, I don't know if you can hear me. Uh, but what is it, how are you enjoying working for Condoleezza Rice? Absolutely. Um, Dr. Rice has been fantastic to work for. Um, I met her while I was a graduate student at Stanford. Um, she is uh, herself a, an academic professor of political science and now also a professor in the business school. And actually the, the year I started graduate school is the year she came back from the administration. Um, I had an opportunity to meet her and she from just the very beginning was so welcoming, so encouraging. She said, come meet me, let's meet periodically and has just been a mentor to me. She just was very open and I um, just have found her insight incredibly helpful and thoughtful. Um, and she's been fantastic and as have the other partners in the firm, Robert Gates and Steve Hadley um, and another woman, Anya Manuel. And, uh, you know, and, and th these are a, gr a group of Republicans, but I'll say, um, I'll, but only because I sort of the more left-leaning side of things, but just incredibly thoughtful people, um, thoughtful about so many issues, um, and really just appreciate having, you know, good, smart people in the firm doing good work, you know. We're not doing political consulting, we're doing private sector consulting, helping businesses navigate um, in, the, in the international space. And so bringing expertise from all different areas to, to apply that. So it's really been fantastic working with her. Excellent. And one final question um, that I just put up that hopefully you can see. Um, do you have any final words for young women of color who may want to pursue a career in foreign affairs or international relations? Absolutely. So for women who do want to pursue a career in foreign affairs, international relations, sort of going back to, to what I said, um, it's so important to have mentors and people in your life who you can ask questions, who can sort of tell you the insider knowledge. I think that's the key to so many industries and navigating is, is finding people who are ahead of you to tell you sort of the, the inside scoop, um, to, to introduce you to that person hiring, to let you know about that job that's not necessarily posted um, online somewhere because and that's how it works here in Silicon Valley especially in the tech world is it's all about your networks it's all about your you know your buddies and people you know so I would be really intentional again about building sincere genuine relationships um, with your peers with mentors with people in this space um, to really learn the inside stuff um, and I emphasize this because I as, as I know so many women of color who work so hard in school and who definitely have the credentials, it's really, again, the relationships that are the key to sort of getting into the next step, um, getting to the next level. 
Great. Well, I just want to thank you so much for doing this interview. Uh, you are truly an inspiration to women, both young and old. Um, and I'm sure I'll be reaching out to you again at some point uh, just to hear about how you're doing and to also see how, you know, you can continue to be uh, the inspiration that you are to the women of color, young women of color in, in my network. Um, so I just want to thank you so much again for, for doing this interview. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, and I'd like to thank all the listeners uh, to this edition of WCAP's podcast with Rachel Gillum. And so I will look forward to uh, doing another podcast and uh, providing you with more uh, words from really impressive uh, women of color in the field of peace and security. Thank you. Thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. Please visit WCAPS.org. That's W-C-A-P-S dot org.